0: Section 9 of The Dial, May 1920, by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Ferrard. Section 9. A Portrait of Renoir at Cajun by René Gimple. Translated by Gerald Kelly. A friend has said to me, Since you are going south, when at Cannes, why not push on towards Cajun? some fifteen kilometers away and try to see renoir i am not sufficiently intimate with him to give you a card of introduction but take your chance i took it Pijon is an old hillside village facing the mediterranean its fisherfolk had defended it against the invasion of corsairs during the middle ages thanks to the picturesque and vertiginous slope upon which it is reared sea rovers came from afar to view the place its outlook is magnificent from its heights one's eyes sweep the horizon would monsieur renoir receive me he had not slept during the night a servant informed me but said she if you will give me your card i'll ask if he can see you i waited in the yard or rather neglected kitchen garden the glazed brick house of the louis the sixteenth type had the air of one of those jerry-built villas thrown together from season to season at watering-places their speculative builders being notorious for their lack of taste presently the servant returned if you will be kind enough to enter the dining-room she said we will lower monsieur lower him what did she mean i wondered renoir had been a widower some three years One felt it about the place, remnants of the old order had not been swept aside. In a corner by the window, a table contained some brushes, a box of watercolors, some little pottery tiles decorated with flowers, childish drawings of boats and trees and several plates with Renoir's typical nude, one knee crossing the other. I recognized the color and treatment of the master. Did Renoir work in ceramics, then? but at that moment I perceived through the partly open door two women descending the stairs, carrying the aged painter in a sort of litter. My friend in Paris had warned me that he was almost senile, but I was not prepared for this, and it occurred to me to ask myself what business I had there. Before me was the remnant of a man. The women moved his chair about and revealed him, holding him securely by the shoulders to prevent his collapse— his crossed legs never lost their terrible rigidity he seemed to be all acute angles and of a solid piece like a heavily armored knight unhorsed in combat he rested on one foot the other was swathed in bandages the attendants settled him in his chair to prevent him from toppling forward seated before me he was a fearsome spectacle with elbows pressed against his body and forearms raised, he moved two forbidding stumps of hands, bound with cords and narrow tapes. The fingers were almost shorn of flesh, and their bones seemed to protrude from the thin integument. His poor hands withered like claws. But I had not yet seen his head, which was sunk into his bent shoulders like that of a hunchback. He wore a large English traveling cap, beneath which his face showed pale and hollow-cheeked. His beard was bristly and white and flattened to one side, like gorse laid low by the wind. How had it taken that crease, I wondered. And then I was conscious of his eyes, and a doubt seized me. Did he still possess a spark of the vital thing? My thought was soon to be answered, for, since it was necessary to break the silence, I risked saying As an admirer of your work, I have come to pay homage to its creator. I greet you, master. He motioned me to come nearer and signaled the servant to give him a cigarette, which he put into his mouth and lighted. Then Renoir said, I have all the vices like that of painting. I breathed freely again. That Sally, uttered with a clearness and vibrancy of tone, reassured me. I laughed, and the master smiled at me. His indistinct eyes suddenly became animated. I noticed over in the corner some ceramics, wherein I recognize your hand. He caught the note of inquiry in my remark. Yes, he replied, that was my first medium. I am now teaching the art to my godson, a lad of sixteen who lives with me. It is necessary that everyone have a métier, and this seems to be agreeable to him. It is very difficult, however, since the same color applied by different hands will create a conflict of tones. He then explained that it was necessary to prepare colors so as to obviate as much as possible this eventual change. But have I accomplished that end? he queried. It is some sixty years since I first saw Troyon's great canvas, the return of the cattle, which is in the Louvre. When I viewed the painting again several years ago, the vapour rising from the muzzles of the animals in the hazy sunlight which bathed the scene had quite disappeared. It is for that very reason one must study the action of pigment without cease. I asked him if he especially liked landscape. Well, naturally, he replied, I like it very much, but I find it difficult. I am known as a figure painter, and with reason... My landscape is but an accessory, and I aim always to blend it with my figures, an expression which the old masters never attempted. But what of Georges? I protested. Renoir did not reply, and feeling that he did not approve of my question, I spoke of Corot, of whom he said, That was the great genius of the century, the greatest landscapist ever known. He has been called a poet. That alone does not explain him he was a naturalist. I have studied him without ever attaining to his art. I could never approach him, yet I have placed myself in the very spots where he painted, certain corners of Venice and La Rochelle, and, oh, those excursions of mine about La Rochelle only made me miserable, because of Corot. I wanted to imitate him, but he had given color to the very stones of the place that I could never emulate." He threw his cigarette into a bowl at his feet, and made a sign to his attendant for another. He then continued, "'Landscape is the stumbling-block of the painter. He will think a certain scene gray, perhaps, but how much color one finds in a gray landscape?' "'If you only knew, monsieur, how difficult it is to penetrate the foliage of trees with brushes.' it is extraordinary i said that you and a few friends are of an epoch that produced several masters when the school of eighteen thirty was at its apogee when no hint of decadence had made its appearance among that group in spite of your admiration for these men you were able to create a school not only rivalling theirs but actually opposing it that was the effect of chance he answered there was at that time in paris a painter named glaire a swiss who had a course of instruction in drawing for about six francs a month it was very cheap i had not a sou and it was to his atelier that i was directed there i met Cicely, monet and Bazille. it was our mutual poverty which created a union and it was the effect of those gatherings of ours which brought to notice the Impressionist school. Individually, we had neither the force nor the courage to promote the idea. The school had as its foundation our friendships, discussions, and poverty, and we struggled to uphold one another. In 1872, Bertha Morin joined our group. Securing some funds wherewith, we arranged a sale of our work at the hotel, it created a furore an old habitue of the famous auction-rooms helped us immeasurably by his condemnation he was one of those daily frequenters of the place who reviled in the kind of atmosphere one finds only in a sales-room he entered our salon and calling to a crony who was passing through the lobby said come and see the horrors the other entered and remarked protestingly but they are not so bad the old fellow was indignant they are disgusting and he hastened to gather sympathizers to his side two camps were formed and a veritable fracas ensued joined from time to time but the passers-by attendants were summoned to restore order and they were obliged to close the doors just about the time that peace was restored the sale of our work took place next day, and our canvases sold for an average of twenty-five francs apiece. Yes, but from that day on we had our supporters. The evocation of these youthful and turbulent memories kindled the eyes of Renoir, which shone brilliantly with the retrospection. In spite of his stricken limbs, he seemed no longer infirm in his chair, that aspect of him faded from me before the animation of his eyes what vivacity they gave off what intelligence he still possessed i then asked to see some of his paintings and he instructed his servant to accompany me she led the way to a bedroom in one corner of which the walls contained two rows of canvases without stretchers others were laid upon the eiderdown cover of the bed often the same canvas contained three or four different studies and sometimes a fragment had been cut from a corner these paintings worth of twenty thirty and forty thousand francs were left hanging there like washing out to dry among them were many portraits in the light of the noonday sun his last works had not that bricky quality of colour often so disagreeable a mannerism which he had affected for several years his heads, too, seemed more distinguished. This curious collection of pictures gave me the impression of a heap of precious stones. I asked the servant how Renoir painted them. "'I place the brushes between his fingers,' she said, "'and tie them with the cords and ribbons which you saw. Sometimes they will fall, and I have to replace them.' but what is most surprising about monsieur renoir is the sharpness of his eyes i have known him to call upon me to remove a bristle from his brush which had disengaged itself in the paint i look over the canvas carefully but without success and it is always monsieur who points it out to me this good woman has been in his service for thirteen years and was desolated not to be able to discuss art with the master for his distraction merely acting as his nurse she later conducted me to a little isolated studio in a corner of the garden and there showed me the canvas upon which renoir was working at the time his famous nude woman a well-studied back pose the stretcher on the easel in lieu of being held in place by a block was supported by a counterpoise which allowed Renoir to raise or lower his canvas with the utmost ease. I returned presently to the old painter and said, What marvelous pictures! The number of canvases you have produced is incredible. During my life, he said, I have sold more than three thousand canvases. It must be a great joy for you to realize how strong the influence of your school has been throughout the world. It's Impress on the artistic mind has been so positive that it did not give people of other nations a chance to develop in a national way. This is felt in America, Canada, Sweden, Norway, and Germany. Everywhere, the spirit of the French school is felt. Everywhere, even in Germany, a country where everything remains gothic, exactly as in the Middle Ages. Its architecture still dates from that period then we spoke of degas and he said what a beast that degas was violent and bitter-tongued all his friends grew to shun him in time i was one of the last to remain by him but even i did not hold out until the end it is incomprehensible that manet kind and gentle was always disputed while degas acrid and disagreeable intractable to a degree was hailed by everyone from the very first by the general public, the revolutionaries, and the Institute. They feared him? Yes, that was it. I kept his friendship for a long time, turning myself inside out to please him. One day he said to me, Renoir, I have an implacable enemy, one not to be vanquished. Who is he? I asked. If you must know, the old beast replied, thumping his breast. this enemy is myself. I asked renoir if he would let me have one of his canvases but he was most reluctant saying for the present i am accumulating them i have not enough to leave my children in a year perhaps it will be different perhaps then but i will not sell them cheaply because of the dealers in modern art i will not hinder their commerce and furthermore i have an old debt of gratitude toward durand-ruel who was the only one to come to my rescue when i was hungry I spoke to him, of a canvas I had remarked particularly, some washerwoman beside a stream. That canvas, I said, is surely the countryside between St. Raphael and Monte Carlo. I admire with what truth you have painted the soil about the olive tree, the trunk of which is raised so curiously from the little hillock of earth. That olive tree, replied Renoir was beastly, if you only knew how it harassed me. A tree full of color, not at all gray, its little leaves made me sweat. A sudden gust of wind came, and my tree changed all its tonalities. The color was not on the leaves, but in the open spaces. I know I am not a painter of nature, but to come to grips with her amuses me. Yet a painter is not great until he knows nature, Landscapist. that was at one time a term of contempt especially in the eighteenth century yet that period which i adore produced the greatest landscapists i am a painter of the eighteenth century i consider myself not only a descendant of watteau fragonard and hubert robert in my art but actually of that group watteau raphael giants cut off in the very flower of their youth and genius. I tell you, monsieur, those who die young are gifted with an intelligence that doubles their efforts. End of Section 9